Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. There's no better way to start off a note to Al Davis than with the autumn wind. A renegade, a rebel, a pirate, or rather, a raider. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Annika Garaikis, and each week we head down memory lane as I take you back in time and we remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. On October 8, 2011, Raiders owner Al Davis passed away. His presence is missed, but never forgotten. He was an integral part of what made the NFL what it is today and made significant changes and moves that not only impacted the league, but also the world. He was the first NFL owner to hire an African-American head coach in Art Shell and the first to hire a female chief executive in Amy Trask. Also known as the Princess of Darkness, Amy will join the show in a bit to talk about her memories and time with Al Davis. And there's some incredible behind-the-scenes stories that you do not want to miss. Al Davis was born July 4, 1929. He was raised in Brooklyn, New York, and graduated from Syracuse University. His six-decade professional football history started as a line coach for the Baltimore Colts in 1954. He later became an assistant coach for the Chargers, only to quickly rise to head coach and general manager for the Raiders at just 33 years old. He was the youngest man in football to hold the dual positions. Davis saved a failing franchise, introducing the Raiders' signature colors, silver and black and changing every facet of the team, and in doing so, created... The finest organization in professional sports. The Raiders became one of the NFL's most popular and successful teams under Davis's management. In his first season, he was named Pro Football Coach of the Year after taking the Raiders, who, quote, were picked to finish dead last and led the team to a surprising 10-4 and record. At 36 years old... Davis became the commissioner of the American Football League. At first reluctant to take the post, as commissioner of the AFL, he became the driving force that eventually brought the two major football leagues, the AFL and the NFL, together and merge into what it is today. Under Al Davis, the Raiders qualified for the playoffs in 10 of his first 12 seasons and won the Super Bowl in 1977. This was the finest hour in the history of the Oakland Raiders. You were magnificent out there today. You would often see Davis dressed in all black and wearing dark shades. And that kept with the Raiders' bad boy and villain image. In 1980, Davis announced that he was moving the team to Los Angeles over displeasures with the Raiders' home stadium. Despite legal battles off the field between the city of Oakland, the NFL, and Davis... 
the team succeeded on the field, capturing its second Super Bowl championship in 1981. The following year, Davis won a landmark antitrust lawsuit against the NFL, and the Raiders relocated to Southern California. Their second season in L.A., the Raiders won another Super Bowl. Stadium issues followed them in L.A., and the team returned to Oakland in 1995. Al Davis made a record nine presentations of inductees to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. He himself became enshrined on August 1, 1992. Former Raider coach John Madden was the one who presented him. After an incredible life, at age 82, Al Davis passed away. He was survived by his wife Carol and his son Mark, who assumed his father's title of managing general manager of the Raiders, with Carol being majority owner. What Al Davis has done for football should never be forgotten, and he is regarded as one of the most important figures in NFL history. The Oakland Tribune and Alameda Newspaper Group named him the Bay Area's most significant sports figure of the 21st century. Who was Al Davis behind the shades? For more on that, let's head back in time with Amy Trask. Rhodes? Where we're going, we don't need Rhodes. All right, now we're heading back in time with someone who knew Al Davis extremely well. She's an analyst with CBS Sports, an author, chairman of the board for the Big Three. She's also on the L.A. Sports and Entertainment Commission board, but most know her well as the former CEO of the Oakland Raiders, also known as the Princess of Darkness, the greatest nickname of all time, Amy Trask. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a treat to join you on your podcast. And thank you also for using that nickname, Princess of Darkness. I do think it's the greatest nickname ever, and I shall forever cherish it. And by the way, it wasn't intended as a compliment. That's a whole story in and of itself. Um, It was not intended nicely, but I embraced it. Raiders fans embraced it, and I love it. Do you want to share that story? Actually, I would love to hear the background of how it all started. Oh, sure. Uh, Mike Silver, who, of course, you know, and he was with Sports Illustrated at the time of this story, wrote a profile piece and in it quoted um, some uh, some league sources. I, I forget whether they were team executives or league office executives, probably a combination of both who said of me, yeah, we refer to her as the princess of darkness. And they it was very clear it wasn't intended as a compliment. And by the way, since we'll be talking about Al, I will note that it went on to say that they referred to me as a smarter, meaner Al Davis. Well, he got a kick out of the meaner part. And I always reminded him that it also <laughs> said smarter. So we had that back and forth. But princess of darkness was not intended as a compliment. Raider fans loved it. I loved it, and I shall forever cherish it. See, that's how you make the best out of a tough situation. Kids, remember that. And there is absolutely no question about how smart you are, Amy. But I understand that this has to be a hard time of the year for you because it is the anniversary of when Al Davis passed. But you worked with Al for more than 25 years. How would you best describe your relationship with him? The word I that, that immediately comes to mind where we're doing word association is special. It was a very, very 
special relationship. Uh, if you count, and I, I didn't do the math, I, you clearly did. I think if you count my internship, during which I interacted directly with Al, um, I was with the organization almost 30 years, only one of which um, was after he passed. So I worked for him for almost three decades. And, you know, I grew up on the job. I started when I was really young. Um, given how long I was there, I would love to tell you I started when I was 12, but that wouldn't be true. Um, and it was just a very, very meaningful relationship. And the reason I point to how long I worked with him was to give a sense of how significant a relationship that is in my life. You met him when you were first an intern, and he obviously already established who he was in the NFL. What was your initial perception of him when you met him? What was that first encounter like? Um, I don't. I actually don't remember the very, very first encounter, or which came in which order, but I was acting as an intern for the team, and I was reporting to the lawyer that was, you know, in-house with the team. And I was asked to, or yeah, I guess asked to is the best way to, to put it, go on a business trip and collect some information for the team. And I interacted with Al in, in that regard, discussing the trip that I would be making. And it was very, um, just a very normal business meeting. I noticed right away about Al, and I think this speaks highly, highly of people, is he treated people without regard to their role or their title. Um, he was every bit as gracious with a receptionist or someone bringing food into a meeting or someone assisting with a car in a valet setting as he was with heads of businesses. So, you know, he interacted with me in a manner that didn't suggest he was interacting with an intern, but with someone who was working on a project for the team. Yeah, there truly wasn't anybody like Al Davis, and I don't think there ever will be anybody like him again. But in what ways was he different from the other owners? Every way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just finish up with, well, and by the way, what I was just talking about was a very good indicia of one thing that was quite different. I've always thought that you could tell so much about a person by the way that person treats people who can do nothing for them, as opposed to whether the way they treat people who can assist them or provide value to them. And Al did that magnificently. He treated people without regard to whether they could do anything for them. And look, the, the, the biggest, boldest um, subject that leaps to mind was that he was doing things decades and decades and decades before others thought to even discuss them. Uh, and I will ask you, not in order of importance, of course, but simply chronologically. He hired Tom Flores. Mm -hmm. He hired me. He hired Art Shell as a head coach. And again, that's chronological. That's not in order of importance. I would put myself below both Tom and Art, of course. But this is someone who did not, or, or let me state it in the affirmative, he hired without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, or any other individuality, which has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on whether one can do a job. And I always like to follow that up and say, not only did he hire that way, he fired that way, which is as it should be. Right. In other words, he hired Tom and me and Art and innumerable other people on staff without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, or, or those individualities, which as I said, have no bearing on whether one can do a job. And he was doing this 
decades and decades before others thought to do so. Was breaking barriers something that was also important to him, or was it strictly that he was just hiring the best person for the job? Yeah, that's a great question. There were um, innumerable times throughout my career where I said to Al um, words to the effect that you don't get enough recognition for what you've done. And he would respond, hey, you know, let me get this straight with you. I didn't do it for recognition. And I said, and that's what makes it even more special. He didn't do these things for recognition. He didn't care about whether he got recognition for them. And when he would respond, I didn't do it for recognition. I said, I understand you didn't. And that's what makes it even more important. And by the way, you know, a little recognition for you in this regard wouldn't be a bad thing, but he did not want recognition because in his worldview, uh, this is just what the way the world should work, that people should not be evaluated by any of those individualities or any number of other individualities. But that's what truly made him so special as well. You're right, just because, you know, he not only made a difference in the league, but in essence, it also just made a difference in the world and just expanding, obviously, what's important and looking at the whole picture and seeing everybody as as one, uh, not as different. And he was someone who was very, very active in civil rights, uh, you know, refusing to play in cities where black and white players had to stay in separate hotels. And like you said, everything that he did with hiring Art Shell, Tom Flores hiring you, looking at today's NFL, how would he embrace the whole Black Lives Movement? Well, you know, I've been asked innumerable times over the last number of years, dating back to when Colin first took a knee to the, um, you know, that which occurred both in the league and society after he did that, I should say the league reaction, the societal reaction, the discussions. I've been asked innumerable times, what would Al say about all this? And I'm very, very, very clear in each and every answer, as I will be now, that I will never speak for him in terms of saying what he would say, because I don't think that's the right thing to do. I don't think it's the honorable thing to do. I wouldn't speak for him. I don't like to speak for others, but he is too special for me. So he is at the top of the list of others for whom I will not speak. I will say that throughout everything that has been going on in this country for a number of years is going on now. I miss his voice. I miss his voice so much. The conversations we would have been having about these matters, that which we would have discussed privately, that which he would have shared publicly, I believe would have been of tremendous, tremendous value to our society. And I am, you know, look, I miss him fiercely all the time, but particularly in this context, think about and I think often about how important his voice would be. You must have had some of the most amazing conversations with him. And the majority of people know him, obviously, as the owner, GM and everything around the Oakland Raiders. But outside of football, what was he like? Boy, a student of the world. He knew about world events and world history. And, you know, so doing that in reverse order, you know, I'll start with the fact he knew world history um, so well. Whenever we would be discussing a matter, again, unrelated to football and it involved something going on in the world, his knowledge of world history was tremendous and his knowledge of world events was tremendous. And it startled a lot of people where someone would drop a reference in a meeting and he would respond with some historical anecdote or a current event reference. And it was um, really impressive. Looking at the Oakland Raiders image, there's no other team 
like the Oakland Raiders, obviously. There's that distinct characteristic that he said that he wanted for the team. How did he transform it, and why was the image so important to him? That was just him. Um, you know, that was one of the things that first attracted me to the team. I grew up in, in Los Angeles, and um, then when I, I went up to the Bay Area for college, I was a student at Berkeley, and the Raiders at the time were in Oakland. This was prior to the time that Al moved the team to Los Angeles. And so really and truly, the, the team was just down the road from I'm in Berkeley. The team's in Oakland, very, very close. I went to a few games while I was a student at Cal, and I just fell in love with everything about the team, that um, the team would give second chances and third chances and sometimes fourth and fifth and more chances to individuals who other teams had labeled trouble or behavior problems or people that weren't given chances after having done something to uh, alienate another team or teams. And look, I was labeled a behavior problem in <laughs> kindergarten. That label stuck with me through my 12th grade graduation. Many people suggest that it is still the right label for me. <laughs> One of my nicknames as a child was trouble. So, you know, all of that resonated with me. I thought, wow, you know, this is a team that speaks to me. Second chances, third chances, fourth chances. And that's before I even knew of the other things we've previously discussed in this podcast. But just the whole you know, the the team was known for getting off the bus when it was on a road game, just kind of all looking like bedraggled. And I was always bedraggled. You know, there were no precise dress codes. And it was just Al cared what you did on the field. If you were a player, he didn't care what you wore when you got to the stadium. Well, how did he pull success from those, you know, troubled, quote unquote, players, or even somebody like Jim Plunkett is one of the best examples, playing with two other teams before, then coming to the Raiders and having success with the Raiders. What is it like? What did he see in these players? How was he able to pull that talent and also gain their respect? Well, and I'll be very clear when I talk about behavior problems, I don't want anybody to conclude that now that we're working, you know, talking about Jim, no, there should no, be no, no, <laughs> no suggestion whatsoever that Jim was in that category. We're simply sliding from one topic to another. Right. And I'm going to answer in a way that suggests I'm including Jim in that former category. Look, Al was a football man. Al was a scout. Al was a coach, a winning coach, a successful coach. So, you know, you asked me what earlier what differentiates him or differentiated him from other team owners. This is not someone who built his fortune in industry A or B and then purchased a team. This is a man who football was his only career, his only life outside, you know, once he got out of school. So he did have an eye for players and um, was not shy about bringing someone in that others had given up on for any number of reasons, whether it was on-field issues. Now, I will be very clear that there were lines that he drew. Um, there was certain behavior uh, which was not okay with him. So behavior problem is one thing, certain forms of criminal activity, other things he would not have said, that's right. okay. Now, did he truly embrace that maverick role or just see things differently? I think he just saw things differently than many other people. Um, that may be one of the things that brought us together. Um, I've been told my whole life I'm a contrarian. Uh, people often comment that Al was a contrarian. We probably, that's something we shared in common. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay to be a contrarian. Now, if you could tag someone as his arch nemesis over the years, who would it have been? 
oh boy, I don't, I don't have an answer for that one for you. Okay. You know, there might be a lot of people who would say, well, Pete Rozelle was a nemesis. And certainly during litigation, that was the case. And yet on the day at the league meeting that Pete Rozelle announced his retirement as commissioner of the league, the first person to stand up and physically embrace him and hug him was Al. So he did a very good job of drawing a distinction between a business nemesis uh, you know, people have business disputes all the time, but it doesn't mean that they're nemesis. I don't even know how to do the plural of that one without stuttering and stammering, but it doesn't mean they have to be at odds when it's outside of that particular disagreement. He was somebody, I don't want to say you feared him, but he kind of embraced that villain role. He loved that for the Oakland Raiders. And no matter what, you have a lot of Raider Nation that would still follow him around everywhere. Even when the team left the first time to L.A. and now when the team left for Las Vegas, it seems like Raider Nation seems to still follow this team. And I really want to say it still kind of stems from Al and their love for him. I think there's a lot to what you're saying. The team will always and forever be identified with Al as it should be. And that doesn't mean the team can't go on to do good things after he has passed. It has gone on to do good things after after he has passed. It's not to suggest that, um, you know, the team doesn't continue to exist without him here. But I do think the team will always be identified with him. And I think it should be. And then it's been nine years now since he's passed away. What do you miss most about Al Davis? Oh, boy, I couldn't identify any particular one or two things I missed so much. Um, And yes, I even miss those midnight and 1 a.m. calls, which came in, it seemed like, often every night of the week that came in. And they were usually, um, well, I shouldn't say usually. They were the midnight calls where there was a big issue to handle. And there were the midnight calls just to have a conversation. And there were times, and I'm an early to bed girl. And there were times I would look at my husband and say, midnight? I mean, always midnight. And yet I miss those calls very, very much. Um, As I said earlier, there are important societal issues um, at not important. I mean, amazing, important, world altering, country altering, globally altering societal issues um, throughout the country and the world that I would love to discuss with him. But also um, just the relationship we had. Look, the biggest misconception about Al, in my view, is that you couldn't disagree with him or that he wouldn't tolerate disagreement or he wouldn't tolerate those who disagreed with him. If that were the case, I would have been fired roughly two weeks into my job because he walked into a room where I was sitting with a coworker and lit into that coworker like I can only imagine a velociraptor would rip into flesh. (laughs) And after listening to the conversation for a bit of time, I realized he was wrong And so here I am, you know, a couple of weeks into the job and I say, excuse me, um, you're wrong. And his head swiveled towards me, kind of like Linda Blair's in The Exorcist, only without the green stuff coming out. And I said, look, if the facts on which you were basing your analysis were correct, then your conclusion would be correct. But you are basing this, you're basing your analysis on incorrect data. And therefore, your conclusion is incorrect because the underlying data is incorrect. Well, he yelled and I yelled and look, I don't have a dainty voice ever. And so the more he raised his voice, the more I raised my voice. But I was only about two weeks in, so I wasn't cussing yet. Um, He was, you know, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to me, a crowd gathered in the hallway outside the office where we were sitting. And um, one woman even went and got boxes because she thought, well, that's it. She's only been here two, two and a half weeks. She's not staying. But after we argued for quite a bit of time, he looked at me and he said, oh, okay, I got you. 
I got, I don't remember he said, I gotcha, or I got it, or I, I'm kind of, I, I do remember that, but right now, I think he said, okay, I got it, I gotcha, and um, that was it. Conversation over, argument over, um, he acknowledged, to, we then had the rest of the discussion where it was clear he acknowledged he had reached the wrong conclusion, and um, that set the tone for our relationship for almost 30 years, as I mentioned, which is, I disagreed with him more than I agreed with him, it seemed, at times, and yet I knew if I was going to disagree I would come, I would have a reason to disagree. I wasn't disagreeing simply to be disagreeable, but to present an alternative argument, if you will. But then I recognized once I made my argument, stated my case, he owned the team and ultimately the business decisions were his to make. But he definitely respected you and valued your opinion. I think that's what made you have such a strong and wonderful relationship all those years and what really led to so much of the success with the team with you both there. Uh, So, but Amy, uh, amazing, amazing memories. We definitely miss Al. And I say this also, as somebody who grew up a 49er fan, I had so much respect for Al Davis and what he brought to the league, to sports, and to the entire world. So he is truly missed. And I appreciate you coming on and talking about Al today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to join you on such an important subject to me and to so many Raider fans. Thank you for having me. And since you grew up a 49er fan, I will leave you with this one thought. Some of my favorite football discussions where I learned so much about football were spending hours and hours talking X's and O's in the room with both Al and Bill Walsh. Those are very special moments. Oh, my gosh. That, I wish to be a fly on the wall for that would have been probably the most amazing thing. So, And you got to experience it all. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks again. Just win, baby. A big thank you to Amy Trask for sharing her memories of Al Davis. You know, it makes you wonder, what would the NFL be like today if it weren't for Al Davis? You think of the merger, being a civil rights activist, and someone who didn't let anything get in his way, even the rules. So let me know what you think. How would the NFL be different if it weren't for Al Davis? Let me know by reaching out on Twitter at Anna Kagarakis, that's K-A-G-A-R-A-K-I-S, and by using the hashtag Sports Time Machine. Some other things that happened on this day in history... On October 8, 1971, John Lennon released his mega-hit single, Imagine. The song encouraged his audience to imagine a world at peace, without borders, divisions of religion and nationality, and a world where material possessions weren't important. It was the best-selling solo song of his career. But the song remains controversial over the line, to imagine no religion too. Despite the controversy, Rolling Stone ranked Imagine number three on the list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, with the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction at number two, and Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone taking the number one spot. But the Beatles are the most represented musical act, with 23 songs on the list. Well, that will do it for today. Thank you for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. We're also available on all your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagarakis and on Instagram at Anna Kags. And use the hashtag Sports Time Machine to get involved with the show. 
And if you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Thanks again for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagarakis. In honor of Al Davis, I leave you with the autumn wind. The autumn wind is a pirate. Blustering in from sea, with a rollicking song he sweeps along, swaggering boisterously. His face is weather-beaten. He wears a hooded sash with a silver hat about his head and a bristling black mustache. He growls as he storms the country, a villain big and bold. And the trees all shake and quiver and quake as he robs them of their gold. The autumn wind is a raider, pillaging just for fun. He'll knock you round and upside down and laugh when he's conquered and won. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit